So over the last few weeks, we've looked at the character of an elder. Uh, We've seen what his home life is supposed to look like. Um, We've seen uh, how important it is for the group of men that lead the church to be uh, trustworthy and to have a good reputation. And as we move on to the last part of the first chapter of Titus, we need to look at the elder, the the pastor's teaching. What is it to be like? What are to be the characteristics of his teaching? And it's vital that the people that lead the church are those who take the word of God seriously. I wonder this morning if we've lost perspective of how special it is that we have possession of the Word of God. Nathaniel uh, alluded to to it in his prayer. Isn't it wonderful that we have God's Word and we have it in our own language, we're able to understand it. God's Word is described in some wonderful ways in the Bible. In Hebrews, uh, we read this this well-known verse, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it's able to to cut right in. It's it's incisive. Uh, We read elsewhere that the word of God is without any error. This God, the word says, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. We also read elsewhere that the word of God is life to those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. How does uh, the psalmist describe the Bible? He says, uh, God's word is sweeter than honey. Not only is this honey sweet and pleasant to taste, but it provides sustenance in difficult times. Last week, can you cast your minds to last week? Do you remember what song uh, we sang As uh, after the children's talk, we sang, God's word is a lamp to our feet. You see, uh, God's word is sufficient for all purposes. It encourages us. It nourishes us. It guides us. It corrects us. It heals us. And if an elder is to have an effective and faithful ministry... The word needs to be at the centre of all that they do. If a church is to grow not only in number, but in fruitfulness, then the word needs to be at the centre. Jesus needs to be made much of through the preaching of his word. And I want us to look at two uh, aspects of the elders preaching, uh, which are vital to a faithful ministry. And both these aspects have ultimately got the same desire to see sinners saved, to see God glorified, to see broken and corrupt hearts made whole again. So in order for these goals to be achieved, uh, the, the pastor, the elder, I'm using those phrases interchangeably, by the way, uh, he has to do two very different things, okay? And the first of these is to hold firm and give instruction, Uh, The first thing is hold firm and give instruction. Uh, We hold firm to the things that we care most about. If you try and take 
a toy from a child, like I've done uh, on numerous occasions, then a child will hold very firmly and tell you that it's not yours to take. Uh, Or think of um, Gollum from Lord of the Rings, uh, in the Lord of the Rings books and the the film. Uh, Gollum is obsessed with a ring, isn't he? A, A powerful, magical ring that eventually corrupts those who possess it. And throughout the the, the series, uh, throughout the story, Gollum's unwillingness to let go of the ring uh, becomes the most central theme. His desire for the ring is, is so strong that it consumes him and it leads to this kind of dual personality and a constant internal struggle between good and evil and uh, Smeagol and Gollum. And uh, he attacks anyone who comes in the way of him getting close to the ring. He wants to hold firm to it. Now, that's a a trivial example, isn't it, Uh, of someone's unwavering commitment to hold firm. So let me ask you this morning, what are you holding firm to? What is a non-negotiable in your life? Uh, What do you fight to protect? And looking at verse 9, it becomes clear what the non-negotiable should be for the elder, what the elder should be fighting to protect. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. We hold firm to the things that we care about, don't we? Uh, We keep a tight grip ensuring that it doesn't get into the wrong hands, that it doesn't get misapplied or misconstrued. We show how precious and how important something is to us by caring for it in this way. And that is what Paul says to the elders in Crete must do. And what is it that he wants them to hold on to? Well, it's the trustworthy word, as they've already been taught. This is not some new message that they've already, uh, that they've come up with themselves. It's a case of being faithful to the message that they've already received. And that is what we are all doing, isn't it? It's amazing to think, isn't it, brothers and sisters, that you heard the gospel message from someone else. And I don't know who that person was. And I hope over the many weeks and months and years that uh, we are here in this church, that we have together, God willing, that I will get to hear all of your testimonies. But I wonder who shared the gospel with you? It may have been a family member. It may have been as a child and your um, mum your, or your dad uh, shared the good news of the gospel with you. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was uh, the chaplain on the camp that you went to. Uh, Maybe it was a colleague or a friend. It may have been when you walked into this building for the first time and you wanted to know what was going on and you heard the preaching of the word for the first time. It may have been when you heard an open-air preacher in the town centre. Whatever or wherever or whoever it was that shared that message of hope with you, They also heard it from someone else and they too would have heard it from someone else. And it's amazing to think, isn't it, that eventually we would trace the chain of gospel proclamation right back to Jesus himself. That is why this is a trustworthy message, not because of the people that have shared it, but because of how trustworthy Jesus is. And the preacher is to hold firm to this good news for the good of others. Yes, it will uh, benefit his soul to hold firm to it, but it's so, as it says in verse 9, that he is able to give 
instruction in sound doctrine. That is what a pastor is to do. And the word sound here is used a number of times. Uh, and it's a word we sometimes use, isn't it? Sometimes uh, we, we use it for someone we trust and someone that we, we like, someone who's nice. And we often refer to them, yeah, he's pretty sound, isn't he? Uh, or if we agree with, with to do something and you, you make plans with a friend and you say, yeah, sound, let's do that. It's used in that term, isn't it? But uh, here, uh, the word that is used by Paul is used uh, in, in Greek to use uh, to describe someone's health. It's the same root word that we get the word hygiene from. And it's important for us to think of health whenever we see the word sound in Scripture, because that is what good teaching intends to do. It's for the health of someone's soul. That is what the pastor is caring for, the health of this congregation's soul. Now, an elder has many different hats that they wear, but they are first and foremost physicians that care for the hearts of the flock. A pastor is not an attorney uh, coming in to solve the arguments and disputes between church members. A pastor is is not a, a motivational speaker who comes to give you a pep talk at the start of your week. A pastor is not a therapist who comes to listen to your problems and to work together to try and achieve your goals. All of these things have lower expectations than what God can really do in your life. That is not what the eldership of this church has been put into place here for. We don't want to limit what happens here to helpful advice. We don't want top tips. We also don't want instructions that aren't biblical. We need instructions which are sound. We need our hearts and our souls to be made healthy through the balm of the gospel. So the most useful weapon a preacher has isn't clever rhetoric or life experience or references to films that people may have seen or good stories or charisma as helpful as all of those things may be, the pastor's most valuable asset is the truth. To tell others the good news of Jesus, which is not uh, on the basis of opinion, but on the basis of the authority of God, who knows all things and can do all things. The truth is so important. We mentioned, uh, can you cast your minds back four weeks ago? to when we started looking at this book. Truth is very important, isn't it? Uh, Let me read the first couple of verses again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So truth is so integral to the Christian message. And that leads us to our second point. Uh, What else is a a pastor supposed to do with his preaching? Well, he's supposed to rebuke and silence those who contradict the message. He is to rebuke and silence those who contradict the message. So the second thing that that Paul outlines that the elder uh, needs to do doesn't quite sit so easily on our British uh, polite dispositions. Uh, We do not particularly like offending people. Well, maybe some of you do, but uh, most of us don't. Uh, We don't like to to call people out, do we? Uh, We prefer to keep everyone 
on side with us, even if we are in firm disagreement with us and we need to vent to someone when we leave the room. This, however, is not what an elder is called to do. Uh, Paul doesn't mince his words here. Look at verses 10 to 14. Uh, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. We need to realise why Paul was saying this. On the island of Crete, where uh, Titus was going to be situated, not only was there a, a culture of lying, but there was a readiness to receive lies. And that's uh, why Paul says, uh, Cretans are liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And Paul here is quoting one of Crete's own poets here. It's like a, a pastor in England quoting Shakespeare. This is the foremost uh, Cretan poet. He is called Epimenides and uh, he, is, he quotes him here. But he says that he agrees with Epimenides. Epimenides was writing a few hundred years before Paul and uh, Epimenides said that Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Um, and you, you don't know if you can trust Epimenides because he, uh, he was a Cretan himself. So if they're always liars, what does that say about him? Uh, But is Paul not jumping on a a racial stereotype here? Is it not like me saying the Welsh are are, are overly emotional, Scottish people are a bit tight with their money, and the English people avoid all confrontations, and they're too polite, and the Irish are a bit simple. I hope I've offended everyone uh, here. Uh, None of those are particularly helpful or accurate, are they? So why would Paul use stereotypes in a, in, a, in a letter here that is going to be recorded in scripture. Why would you say such a thing? Well, one of the reasons why Paul speaks of the Cretans in, in this way is because these things are true of all people who are born with a sinful nature. All of us are sinners who are likely to lie, who are evil, who are lazy. So this is true of Crete as well as it's true of, of Cliddach and of South Wales as a whole. Uh, But Paul particularly draws uh, out this point because there can be stereotypes which come into common usage every day uh, because of their accuracy. And in those days, uh, people did relate uh, places on the map to certain temperaments and certain uh, ways of acting. If you accuse someone of of living like a Corinthian, uh, that person was someone who was uh, whose life was characterized by by debauchery and and they were living in in luxury and if you accuse someone of talking like a Cretan in the first century it was to do with the fact that they were a liar and details like this give us some sort of insight into the situations Titus was ministering into on an island where lies are being told and just as readily received and accepted by the people Titus needed to promote truth. 
silencing and rebuking those who are lying and to preach the truth. The Lord Jesus always spoke the truth into the situations that he ministered to. Uh, Our desire whenever we sit under the word of God should be to hear the truth. We don't want to hear some fancy new idea. We uh, seek to, to hear the preaching of the words in this church and the preaching of Christ crucified. And we aim to preach in this church with both grace and truth. And that's what Jesus did. He didn't pander to people that he ministered to. Uh, think of how uh, it's a hot day and uh, Jesus uh, draws close to this well in Samaria. Samarians and Jews didn't mix because of uh, a, a, a history of, uh, of violence and of uh, distrust between the two uh, sets of people. And uh, Jesus did the unthinkable and started speaking not only to a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. Men and women uh, didn't mix in those days. And uh, he confronts her about her adultery. Uh, he says, uh, he asks her who, he li- who she lives with. And uh, she says, I don't live with anyone. And uh, I don't have a husband, she says. And Jesus says this, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So Jesus here, he didn't kind of uh, try to avoid confrontation. He didn't try and avoid uh, the, the elephant in the room. He went there and he, and he spoke to this lady about the, the issues in her life. Or, or think of how he spoke to Nicodemus. This is that, the Samaritan woman is John 4 and uh, the chapter before that is John 3. And Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, one of the foremost authorities in Judaism of the day. And Jesus tells him straight that you can only come to God if you are born again. This is what Jesus says. Very truly, I tell you. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Or think of how the Lord Jesus cuts right to the heart of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus tells him, doesn't he? Go, sell everything that you have. Or when he encounters a man with a a deformed hand in a synagogue and the Pharisees were watching uh, for Jesus' every move and they were hoping to accuse him of something and catch him out and they wanted to see whether he would heal this man on the Lord's day on the Sabbath. And Jesus confronts them with their legalistic approach and he questions, is it better to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And this situation, once again, Jesus spoke in grace and in truth. The situations revealed how the Pharisees adhered to human traditions rather than God's law. They were draining the joy from God's law. And Jesus exposed the pride and the judgmental attitudes within their hearts. Jesus never shied away from the truth. Sometimes uh, you will be in a a debate with someone or a conversation with someone, maybe at work, maybe uh, with a friend, and they will tell you, oh, Jesus was never like that. Jesus was always kind and nice, and he never said anything that hurt anyone. Well, they clearly haven't read their Bibles. 
Jesus never shied away from the truth. Some of the things that Jesus said left his hearers angry. Sometimes it shocked people, but it always revealed what the people truly thought of Christ. Uh, The Pharisee and the rich young ruler, they left disappointed. Their hearts were saddened. Their hearts were angry. But the Samaritan woman at the well, Nicodemus, they followed the Lord as their saviour. So when the word is faithfully preached, the intended result always takes place. Isaiah 55 says this, For as the, the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So it's important, isn't it? It's vital that we speak the truth and that we speak the truth with a motivation of love rather than wanting to humiliate or defeat a particular person. But we must see the danger of it. We must see the danger of false teaching. Look at verse 11. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Uh, False teaching can tear apart and ruin whole families. And it's the subtle ways in which it looks like it's helpful teaching, but it's in fact sowing seeds of doubt in the hearts of all those who hear it. Uh, Titus needed to find men who were bold, who were bold enough to silence such teaching. And one particular group of liars that Paul wants Titus to be wary of is this overly religious sect. Uh, He calls them the circumcision party. Now circumcision was something that uh, the people of Israel had been uh, commanded to do by God. But the new church in the New Testament, those under the new covenant were not under the same obligation. So what was the attraction of such a a movement? Why were people still enforcing this? Well, one aspect, I I think, was that the power it gave people. Uh, We're right and you're wrong. Uh, We've done this to ourselves, uh, so we're superior to you and we're holier than you and we're more obedient than you are. But what they had done was misunderstood the reason why God had given the people circumcision in the Old Testament. The reason it had been given was to to set the people of God apart and to to create a a special people that Jesus could be born into. So when Jesus came and he fulfilled the law, the strict cultural laws that the Jews were supposed to uphold were no longer needed to be kept. And there's this instant where Paul and the other apostles and those who had authority in such matters uh, meet together in the early church to discuss these things. If you want to read this this afternoon to, to see a bit more about what, what the Bible says about it, it's in Acts chapter 15. And there's this meeting in Jerusalem. Uh, it's a very contentious issue which is arising. And there's a group uh, that uh, argue that those who come from a Gentile background must be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law. And the apostles and the elders come together to discuss the matter. 
And, and Peter speaks, and he asserts that God accepts Gentiles through faith. And burdening them with Moses' law is unnecessary. And James, the brother of Jesus, agrees. And the assembly decides not to trouble Gentile believers with the law, but just tells them, stop, avoid adultery, avoid idolatry, avoid uh, blood and strangled animals and other things that may be stumbling blocks, but you don't need to be circumcised anymore. And so that is this, the context for this letter being written. Uh, that is another background thing to be aware of. Now, there isn't that same danger today, is there, of an influential pe- uh, people group arising from within this church, uh, enticing people with Old Testament law. That's not, I don't think that's going to happen in my time here. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen in any time here. Uh, but we sometimes misapply the law and twist it to our own advantage because we have that same desire that the people in Titus's day had to please God with our own merits, for us to have earned our own salvation, to be recognized for how great we are. And yet we ultimately know that there is no righteousness to be found outside of God. But the same can be said on the other side of the coin. It seems not only that there were those trying to earn their salvation uh, through their own acts of righteousness, through circumcision, but also those who were living with a total disregard to morality altogether. Those who didn't care about pleasing God with Old Testament rituals, but those who did whatever they wanted, those who drunk what they wanted, who slept with who they wanted, who said what they wanted and did exactly what felt right to them. But at the end of the day, claimed to know God, despite all of this. And we can be guilty of both these extremes, can't we? We can sometimes try to impress God with how righteous we are, how good we are, how wonderful we are, how well we've kept the law. And there are other times where we, we go to the other end of the spectrum, the other end of the, of the pendulum, where we, we, we want to enjoy God's grace, so we live in whatever way we want to. Regardless of where your temptation is this morning, whether it's trying to win God's favour with your own act of righteousness, or whether you want to be a Sunday Christian who keeps up appearances in church but lives a far removed life from Christ from Monday to Saturday. Uh, My hope is that each time we come together to worship, that the lies that the world offers you, whether that of uh, a false religion or that of sensuality, we pray that that will be refuted. False teaching cannot be dealt with through ignoring it. It must be shown for what it is. It's empty and it leads to death. So here then, this uh, final verse in chapter 1. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their good works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You may be sat here this morning and you're not 100% sure whether you'd call yourself a Christian and you, you're clinging to the idea that you're a good person. And verse 16 shows that anyone who doesn't truly know God, anyone whose life isn't a visible display of the work that God has done in their lives, cannot be a good person. It's, it's not possible. 
It's no good that you consider yourself more moral, more kind, more generous than the average person. Your standard is not the benchmark. What you think is good falls far below the standard of a holy, perfect God. So we need to come to terms with the fact that we are all born in sin. We are all blind and we all need to have our sight restored. We are all lost and need to be found. We are all dead and need to be raised to life. That is the truth. And it's hard to hear. But with the diagnosis, there is also the wonderful news of a cure. There's a wonderful truth for you this morning. There is more grace in the Lord Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. There is more grace in the Lord Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. He welcomes sinners like you and like me. He forgives sinners like you and like me. He changes sinners like you and like me. And he longs to call you into his precious family. So do not listen to the empty talkers and the deceivers of this world. But come, come and hear the sound doctrines which bring life.